Section 42 The Critique of Pure Reason by Immanuel Kant Transcendental Doctrine of Method Chapter 1 The Discipline of Pure Reason Section 3 The Discipline of Pure Reason in Hypothesis This critique of reason has now taught us that all its efforts to extend the bounds of knowledge by means of pure speculation are utterly fruitless. So much the wider field, it may appear, lies open to hypothesis, as, where we cannot know with certainty, we are at liberty to make guesses and to form suppositions. Imagination may be allowed, under the strict surveillance of reason, to invent suppositions, but these must be based on something that is perfectly certain, and that is the possibility of the object. If we are well assured upon this point, it is allowable to have recourse to supposition in regard to the reality of the object. But this supposition must, unless it is utterly groundless, be connected, as its ground of explanation, with that which is really given and absolutely certain. Such a supposition is termed a hypothesis. It is beyond our power to form the least conception a priori of the possibility of dynamical connection in phenomena, and the category of the pure understanding will not enable us to cogitate any such connection, but merely helps us to understand it, when we meet with it in experience. For this reason we cannot, in accordance with the categories, imagine or invent any object or any property of an object not given, or that may not be given in experience and employ it in a hypothesis. Otherwise, we should be basing our chain of reasoning upon the mere chimerical fancies, and not upon conceptions of things. Thus, we have no right to assume the existence of new powers, not existing in nature, for example, an understanding with a non-sensuous intuition, a force of attraction without contact, or some new kind of substances occupying space, and yet without the property of impenetrability, and, consequently, we cannot assume that there is any other kind of community among substances than that observable in experience, any kind of presence than that in space, or any kind of duration than that in time. In one word, the conditions of possible experience are for reason the only conditions of the possibility of things, Reason cannot venture to form, independently, of these conditions any conceptions of things, because such conceptions, although not self-contradictory, are without object and without application. The conceptions of reason are, as we have already shown, mere ideas and do not relate to any object in any kind of experience. At the same time, they do not indicate imaginary or possible objects. They are purely problematical in their nature and, as aids to the heuristic exercise of the faculties, form the basis of the regulative principles for the systematic employment of the understanding in the field of experience. If we leave this ground of experience, they become mere fictions of thought, the possibility of which is quite indemonstrable, and they cannot, consequently, be employed as hypotheses in the explanation of real phenomena. It is quite admissible to cogitate the soul as simple, for the purpose of enabling ourselves to employ the idea of a perfect and necessary unity of all the faculties of the mind, 
as the principle of all our inquiries into its internal phenomena, although we cannot cognize this unity in concreto, but to assume that the soul is a simple substance, a transcendental conception, would be announcing a proposition which is not only indemonstrable, as many physical hypotheses are, but a proposition which is purely arbitrary and in the highest degree rash. The simple is never presented in experience, and, if by substance is here meant the permanent object of sensuous intuition, the possibility of a simple phenomenon is perfectly inconceivable. Reason affords no good grounds for admitting the existence of intelligible beings, or of intelligible properties of sensuous things, although, as we have no conception either of their possibility or of their impossibility, it will always be out of our power to affirm dogmatically that they do not exist. In the explanation of given phenomena, no other things and no other grounds of explanation can be employed than those which stand in connection with the given phenomena according to the known laws of experience. A transcendental hypothesis, in which a mere idea of reason is employed to explain the phenomena of nature, would not give us any better insight into a phenomenon, as we should be trying to explain what we do not sufficiently understand from known empirical principles, by what we do not understand at all. The principles of such a hypothesis might conduce to the satisfaction of reason, but it would not assist the understanding in its application to objects. Order and conformity to aims in the sphere of nature must be themselves explained upon natural grounds and according to natural laws, and the wildest hypotheses, if they are only physical, are here more admissible than a hyperphysical hypothesis, such as that of a divine author. For such a hypothesis would introduce the principle of ignava ratio, which requires us to give up the search for causes that might be discovered in the course of experience, and to rest satisfied with a mere idea. As regards the absolute totality of the grounds of explanation in the series of these causes, this can be no hindrance to the understanding in the case of phenomena, because, as they are to us nothing more than phenomena, we have no right to look for anything like completeness in the synthesis of the series of their conditions. Transcendental hypotheses are therefore inadmissible, and we cannot use the liberty of employing, in the absence of physical, hyperphysical grounds of explanation, and this for two reasons. First, because such hypotheses do not advance reason, but rather stop it in its progress. Secondly, because this license would render fruitless all its exertions in its own proper sphere, which is that of experience. For when the explanation of natural phenomena happens to be difficult, we have constantly at hand a transcendental ground of explanation, which lifts us above the necessity of investigating nature, and our inquiries are brought to a close, not because we have obtained all the requisite knowledge, but because we abut upon a principle which is incomprehensible, and which, indeed, is so far back in the track of thought as to contain the conception of the absolutely primal being. The next requisite for the admissibility of a hypothesis is its sufficiency. That is, it must determine a priori the consequences which are given in experience and which are supposed to follow from the hypothesis itself. 
if we require to employ auxiliary hypotheses, the suspicion naturally arises that they are mere fictions, because the necessity for each of them requires the same justification as in the case of the original hypothesis, and thus their testimony is invalid. If we suppose the existence of an infinitely perfect cause, we possess sufficient grounds for the explanation of the conformity to aims, the order and the greatness which we observe in the universe, but we find ourselves obliged, when we observe the evil in the world and the exceptions to these laws, to employ new hypotheses in support of the original one. We employ the idea of the simple nature of the human soul as the foundation of all the theories we may form of its phenomena, but when we meet with difficulties in our way, when we observe in the soul phenomena similar to the changes which take place in matter, we require to call in new auxiliary hypotheses. These may, indeed, not be false, but we do not know them to be true, because the only witness to their certitude is the hypothesis which they themselves have been called in to explain. We are not discussing the above-mentioned assertions regarding the immaterial unity of the soul and the existence of a supreme being as dogmata, which certain philosophers profess to demonstrate a priori, but purely as hypotheses. In the former case, the dogmatist must take care that his arguments possess the apodictic certainty of a demonstration. For the assertion that the reality of such ideas is probable is as absurd as a proof of the probability of a proposition in geometry. Pure abstract reason, apart from all experience, can either cognize nothing at all, and hence the judgments it announces are never mere opinions, they are either apodictic certainties or declarations that nothing can be known on the subject. Opinions and probable judgments on the nature of things can only be employed to explain given phenomena, or they may relate to the effect, in accordance with empirical laws, of an actually existing cause. In other words, we must restrict the sphere of opinion to the world of experience and nature. Beyond this region, opinion is mere invention, unless we are groping about for the truth on a path not yet fully known, and have some hopes of stumbling upon it by chance. But although hypotheses are inadmissible in answers to the questions of pure speculative reason, they may be employed in the defense of these answers. That is to say, hypotheses are admissible in polemic, but not in the sphere of dogmatism. By the defense of statements of this character, I do not mean an attempt at discovering new grounds for their support, but merely the refutation of the arguments of opponents. All a priori synthetical propositions possess the peculiarity that, although the philosopher who maintains the reality of the ideas contained in the proposition is not in possession of sufficient knowledge to establish the certainty of his statements, his opponent is as little able to prove the truth of the opposite. This equality of fortune does not allow the one party to be superior to the other in the sphere of speculative cognition, and it is this sphere, accordingly, that is the proper arena of these endless speculative conflicts. But we shall afterwards show that, in relation to its practical exercise, reason has the right of admitting what, in the field of pure speculation, she would not be justified in supposing, 
except upon perfectly sufficient grounds, because all such suppositions destroy the necessary completeness of speculation, a condition which the practical reason, however, does not consider to be requisite. In this sphere, therefore, reason is mistress of a possession, her title to which she does not require to prove, which, in fact, she could not do. The burden of proof, accordingly, rests upon the opponent. But as he has just as little knowledge regarding the subject discussed, and is as little able to prove the non-existence of the object of an idea, as the philosopher on the other side is to demonstrate its reality, it is evident that there is an advantage on the side of the philosopher who maintains his proposition as a practically necessary supposition, melior est conditio possidentis, for he is at liberty to employ in self-defense the same weapons as his opponent makes use of in attacking him, that is, he has a right to use hypotheses not for the purpose of supporting the arguments in favor of his own propositions, but to show that his opponent knows no more than himself regarding the subject under discussion, and cannot boast of any speculative advantage. Hypotheses are, therefore, admissible in the sphere of pure reason only as weapons for self-defense, and not as supports to dogmatical assertions. But the opposing party we must always seek for in ourselves. For speculative reason is, in the sphere of transcendentalism, dialectical in its own nature. The difficulties and objections we have to fear lie in ourselves. They are like old but never superannuated claims, and we must seek them out and settle them once and forever, if we are to expect a permanent peace. External tranquillity is hollow and unreal. The root of these contradictions which lies in the nature of human reason must be destroyed, and this can only be done by giving it, in the first instance, freedom to grow, nay, by nourishing it, that it may send out shoots and thus betray its own experience. It is our duty, therefore, to try to discover new objections, to put weapons in the hands of our opponent, and to grant him the most favorable position in the arena that he can wish. We have nothing to fear from these concessions. On the contrary, we may rather hope that we shall thus make ourselves master of a possession which no one will ever venture to dispute. The thinker requires to be fully equipped the hypotheses of pure reason, which, although but leaden weapons, for they have not been steeled in the armory of experience, are as useful as any that can be employed by his opponents. If, accordingly, we have assumed, from a non-speculative point of view, the immaterial nature of the soul, and are met by the objection that experience seems to prove that the growth and decay of our mental faculties are mere modifications of the sensuous organism, we can weaken the force of this objection by the assumption that the body is nothing but the fundamental phenomenon to which, as a necessary condition, all sensibility, and consequently all thought, relates in the present state of our existence and that the separation of soul and body forms the conclusion of the sensuous exercise of our power of cognition and the beginning of the intellectual. The body would, in the view of the question, be regarded not as the cause of thought, but merely as its restrictive condition, as promotive of the sensuous and animal, but as a hindrance to the pure and spiritual life, 
and the dependence of the animal life on the constitution of the body would not prove that the whole life of man was also dependent on the state of the organism we might go still farther and discover new objections or carry out to their extreme consequences those which have already been adduced generation in the human race as well as among the irrational animals depends on so many accidents of occasion of proper sustenance of the laws enacted by the government of a country of vice even that it is difficult to believe in the eternal existence of a being whose life has begun under circumstances so mean and trivial and so entirely dependent upon our own control as regards the continuance of the existence of the whole race we need have no difficulties for accident in single cases is subject to general laws but in the case of each individual it would seem as if we could hardly expect so wonderful an effect from causes so insignificant but in answer to these objections we may adduce the transcendental hypothesis that all life is properly intelligible and not subject to changes of time and that it neither began in birth nor will end in death we may assume that this life is nothing more than a sensuous representation of pure spiritual life that the whole world of sense is but an image hovering before the faculty of cognition which we exercise in this sphere and with no more objective reality than a dream and that if we could intuit ourselves and other things as they really are we should see ourselves in a world of spiritual natures our connection with which did not begin at our birth and will not cease with the destruction of the body and so on we cannot be said to know what has been above asserted nor do we seriously maintain the truth of these assertions and the notions therein indicated are not even ideas of reason they are purely fictitious conceptions but this hypothetical procedure is in perfect conformity with the laws of reason our opponent mistakes the absence of empirical conditions for a proof of the complete impossibility of all that we have asserted and we have to show him that he has not exhausted the whole sphere of possibility and that he can as little compass that sphere by the laws of experience and nature as we can lay a secure foundation for the operations of reason beyond the region of experience such hypothetical defenses against the pretensions of an opponent must not be regarded as declarations of opinion so soon as the opposite party renounces its dogmatical conceit to maintain a simply negative position in relation to propositions which rest on an insecure foundation well befits the moderation of a true philosopher but to uphold the objections urged against an opponent as proofs of the opposite statement is a proceeding just as unwarrantable and arrogant as it is to attack the position of a philosopher who advances affirmative propositions regarding such a subject it is evident therefore that hypotheses in the speculative sphere are valid not as independent propositions but only relatively to opposite transcendent assumptions for to make the principles of possible experience conditions of the possibility of things in general is just as transcendent a procedure as to maintain the objective reality of ideas which can be applied to no objects except such as lie within the limits of possible experience the judgments announced by pure reason must be necessary or they must not be announced at all 
Reason cannot trouble herself with opinions. But the hypotheses we have been discussing are merely problematical judgments, which can neither be confuted nor proved. While, therefore, they are not personal opinions, they are indispensable as answers to objections which are liable to be raised. But we must take care to confine them to this function, and guard against any assumption on their part of absolute validity, a proceeding which would involve reason in inextricable difficulties and contradictions. End of the Discipline of Pure Reason in Hypothesis